0: Hello, I'm Peter Van Duzen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, the Minister of Defence taps a former Supreme Court Justice to do another review of sexual misconduct in the military. With the promise to finally establish an independent reporting system, the Minister of Defence will be here to explain why it's taken so long to bring meaningful change to the culture inside Canada's military. As MPs debate a timetable for faster COVID vaccinations, a key group on the front lines, nurses, say tougher measures are needed now to prevent the third wave from totally overwhelming the healthcare system. And our panel of party commentators weighs in on the top issues of the day. But we'll begin tonight with the latest effort by the federal government to crack down on the culture of sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. The government has called on former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour to conduct another review of the military with the aim of establishing an independent reporting system outside the military chain of command. And while the government is waiting for the findings of that review, it's creating a new internal d &D Office of Professional Conduct and Culture headed by one of the military's highest-ranking female officers. The move comes as the government faces continuing questions about its handling of the allegations of sexual misconduct against the former Chief of the Defence Staff, General Jonathan Vance. And as new case numbers reveal just how badly efforts to stamp out misconduct in the military have failed. Well, joining me now is the Minister of National Defence, Harjit Sajjan. Minister Sajjan, uh, thanks for taking time to speak with me today. Appreciate it. Let me start by asking you why, why you think we need another study to figure out how to set up an independent reporting system for members of the military who want to report allegations of sexual misconduct.
1: First of all, I just want to say if, and the reason this is uh, we need to do this is we, we need to make sure that we rebuild the confidence for our survivors who have come forward uh, clearly. Um, uh, we need to rebuild the confidence uh, with them to making sure that we have a proper structure in place. And what this external review is, it's much broader than the work that was done in the past. It's about setting up a structure, uh, the exact mechanisms that are going to be needed to making sure that not only the survivors can be heard and, uh, and listened to, but also actions can be taken to hold perpetrators to account that's independent of the chain of command and also the national defense.
0: But you you talked about the work that's been done in the past. It was was extensive work from, uh, you know, the federal government already has a landmark report from another. Supreme Court Justice Marie Deschamps, in 2015, and she recommended at the time the creation of an independent body outside of the military to deal with complaints of misconduct. Instead, your government okayed the establishment of a uh, of Operation Honor and a civilian-run reporting center inside the chain of command. Uh, that's largely been ridiculed from inside and outside of the ranks of the military. And in the past five years, since Operation Honor's been in place. There have been more than 581 reports of sexual assault. So I guess, why are you not announcing today this new independent outside reporting body instead of another study?
1: Well, first of all, it is important to get this right. Um, The the work that was done by Madame Deschamps was extremely important to get the work uh, started. What we're doing right now is to go even broader, to making sure that uh, Madame Brewer can actually dig deep, go broad as possible, to making sure that we actually create the structure in place that's gonna create and provide that confidence Independent of the China Command and National Defense, and look at what that body was going to look like. What right. we had and put what was in place after Madame Deschamps clearly has not worked. And this is one of the reasons why we need to change that.
0: Okay. Um, you know, let me ask you, I mean, I, I guess you, you said today that you've learned the system you have in place now. You just said it, it didn't work. And, but she already found it didn't work, Madame Deschamps, her report in 2015. That was the time to make the change to an independent body. That's what she said. So you're admitting today that not implementing that key recommendation that she made to government at the time was a mistake and a failure. Is that correct?
1: So the the work that was done to create the independence when it came to SMRC, um, that work was being done to make it more independent. What I'm saying there is that work did not go far enough. And what we're doing right now is actually creating an external body. Plus, also, we got to make sure it's, this is not just about reporting we're looking at. We're looking at what structures are going to be needed. For example, what type of legal support will a survivor need coming forward? How does the NIS or the military police connect into the system? There could be legal changes uh, that we might need to, need to make, regulation changes, but the important part of this is making sure that we have a system in place that actually works by listening to our survivors. And clearly, in the last few months, we have not got, uh, gotten this right and we do need but, to do but
0: better. But why, Minister, why isn't that system in place today?
1: I, would, I wish, I wish uh, that we could have gotten this right, but clearly th- this has not worked. Okay, and- so if you had
0: your druthers now looking back, the right way to go would have been an independent reporting system. And at the time, you chose not to go that route. And that's what I'm asking. That, you're, you're saying now that no, was not- a, that was a mistake.
1: No, for what we, the, the, the route that was taken clearly was not the right one, based on now what we have absolutely learned and the survivors that have come forward and who have shared their stories. This is why we need to take a much more broader and bold approach. And one of the things here we're also looking at, not just uh, when survivors come forward, we're looking at the prevention piece. We're looking at how uh, leaders are selected, how the promotion system uh, is also done, plus giving greater latitude for Madame war to go further. We're also putting mechanisms in place immediately with uh, uh, with the organization that uh, Lieutenant General okay. will, carry on will also be leading. But,
0: but, but again, all of this is happening in the context of, of five years now where things haven't gotten better. They've gotten worse in the military. And that's been an acknowledgment that, that the culture hasn't changed. Uh, and. I mean, people are listening to this today, I'm sure within the military and saying, all right, we, we, here we have another study when we had this opportunity five years ago to say this, you know, independent reporting outside the chain, this is how we're gonna do it. But your government chose not to do it.
1: No, we, we took, the, we were taking this very strong action. In fact, when we came in as a government, one of the first things that we did after the defense policy review, we put our people as number one into, as, as chapter number one within that. Uh, I started implementing Madame Duchamp's uh, recommendations into the defense policy itself when it comes to GBA GBA plus analysis uh, that needs to be done. A lot of the work has been uh, ongoing. Good work has been done in some cases, but obviously this is not enough. And one of the things is we need to be even far bolder. And that's what this review is about, is to making sure that we get it right for the survivors. Okay, and l- the l- actions l- will be bold. And, uh, and, and sorry, go on.
0: But, well, I, I bet that's an acknowledgement I'm assuming here that they could have been bolder five years ago. You should have been bolder. The, the, bolder the boldness you're talking about now would have been handy to have five years ago.
1: You know, when, when you had those uh, conversations, like when you look in hindsight, ab- absolutely. Okay. One of the things that I wish we could always look, um, be able to look back and be able to get it right. One of the things that we're trying to do right now, and you're absolutely right. When, you, when, when we talk to our members saying, here we're doing another study, no. What we wanted to do here is when we looked at this is making sure we give confidence uh, to our folks. So we're not going to be just waiting for a report. One of the key aspects of this is that any interim recommendations will be acted upon. And also, um, we'll be able to uh, work with us to making sure that it's okay. set up properly
0: as well. Can, can I get a little clarity here on exactly what you're after? Justice Arbour will be looking at the military justice system as well. So you want to create an independent reporting body outside the military. Does that also include an independent investigative body? Who will investigate the complaints brought forward to this outside reporting body? Because that's important to a lot of people.
1: Absolutely. And that's what exactly will also be looked at. That's why it's going to be very broad uh, in terms of uh, her scope to take a look at. And I don't want to uh, just say this is what I think it should be. She will do that work, but yes, it will look at that. And we're going to go even further. So when we talk about how leaders are selected, for example, the performance evaluation, we want to look at which levels do we need to have even greater scrutiny when for example having 360 right. interviews that are independent uh unit uh, environmental surveys as well all those are going to be taken a do, you, look at.
0: do you think it's time to have an outside investigations uh organization to look into these complaints in the in the military because you know there are critics of the national investigation service uh, which is made up of military police there are reports uh, just today of a private facebook page for military police where comments have been posted mocking the woman at the center of the allegations against general vance do you believe military police and the national investigation service can be trusted to take allegations of misconduct seriously
1: well, first of all, um, I haven't seen those, but that is absolutely, extremely di- di- disappointing and uh, disturbing. Um, but this is exactly what Madame Orboer will be looking at. And she has the tremendous experience to look at exactly how, what, te- or what but, type of But you're, of but you're in the Minister of National Defence.
0: You, you're, you're involved in these conversations all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. What you're hearing from people about the... Uh, The trust factor for the National Investigation Service and the military police and victims saying that they haven't been taken seriously, in some cases victims being mocked. Do you think there needs to be investigation done outside the chain of command and outside the military?
1: And as I stated, uh, this is exactly what Madam Agro will be looking into. This is, these are the same concerns that I have as well, having somebody with the right expertise to take a look at, it, making sure that a right process is in place. And one, we have to get this right. Whatever process we put into place, we can't just say we have an external body, it's going to work. We need to make sure that it's properly tested. Obviously, um, from what we have heard in the past few months, this has not worked. And so this is one thing that I am absolutely certain and committed to, to making sure that what we look at this is we want to be able to stress test it as well, but also put greater support with also greater emphasis on how do we look at preventing these situations from happening in the first place.
0: All right, Minister Sajjan, good to talk to you again. Thanks for your time tonight. Likewise. Thank you. Well, now to the latest on the pandemic third wave in Canada. Ontario announcing today it hopes to make vaccine appointments for all adults by the end of May. Quebec says it will be taking vaccine appointments for all adults by mid-May. Federal officials say that's thanks to the ramp-up in vaccine supply coming to Canada in coming weeks.
2: If you look at what we have received to date um, and distributed, which is you know uh, approximately 15 million doses, since we started in December. What you will see uh, between now and the first week of June is about the same amount. So there's, it's a significant increase in provinces and territories. Vaccines that arrive on a, on schedule at a pace uh, and provinces are now able to plan better uh, with more certainty, with more confidence their, uh, their immunization plans uh, and the same with, uh, with the territories that have been receiving
3: a, a, a steady flow of vaccines.
0: In the House of Commons today, MPs debated a motion from the Conservatives calling on the federal government to ensure every Canadian adult has access to a COVID-19 vaccine by the May long weekend. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole was asked how he expects the Trudeau government to make that happen.
2: Well, yesterday,
0: President Biden talked about the arsenal of vaccines that the United States has on, on, uh, on reserve that could be used for allies and friends.
3: We are their NORAD, NATO, long-standing uh, neighbors, allies, trade partners, our economies are directly integrated. We need the Prime Minister to fight for those vaccines so that we can help move
0: past this health crisis and economic crisis. Well, now to the front lines of the COVID battle and an urgent call for governments to take more drastic steps to counter the third wave as the healthcare system in uh, some provinces is being overwhelmed. And when we say the system, we really mean people in the system, those frontline workers, they make the system run. Vicki McKenna is a registered nurse and the president of the Ontario Nurses Association and she's with me now. Uh, Vicki McKenna, thanks for taking time to speak with me today. Uh, Give me a sense of what's happening to nurses who've assumed so much of the burden of caring uh, for the growing numbers of COVID patients in hospital. What's happening with them?
4: Well absolutely they have and it's uh you know, it's been such a long period of time to be working at the intensity that they are and in the situations that they are. So here in Ontario, and I think most people, you know, watching the news certainly um, you know, certainly know this, is particularly right now in our hospital system, which has been taxed all the way through these numbers of months is in overcapacity, And, uh, you know, so many patients uh, who are so desperately ill, And they are, I'll just say, they're exhausted. They're Mm. physically and mentally exhausted. um, But they are doing the very best they can in the situation that we're all in. But aside from that, what they tell me is that they feel that, you know, it's hard for them to see the light uh, at the end of the tunnel and it's very difficult right now.
0: Ontario is said to be close now to enacting the the triage protocols to decide who gets intensive Mm -hmm. care treatment when it's needed and uh, who doesn't uh, because there are too many patients uh, to treat it at any single time. How close Uh, are uh, we to seeing that in Ontario?
4: Well, you know, I hear various reports from the field about this and some of the ways the hospitals are dealing with it is because of capacity, you know, they're trying to, A, open more beds so they can admit more people or transfer people across, and they are transferring Mm -hmm. people across the province in order to build capacity. Um, No one wants to be in a situation of uh, triage protocols. We hope we never get there, but I do hear, and I've heard some of the physicians uh, speaking particularly on the media and at various meetings that they're worried they're worried that we may be reaching that point. Uh, ICU admissions continue to grow. And right now it's precarious, I would say, yeah. for everyone.
0: And people need to make the link, right, between uh, when, when uh, they open uh, tent hospitals, uh, satellite mm-hmm. hospitals, they open more beds. Uh, there need to be frontline professionals to, to deal with exactly. those patients, right? And that's the big strain.
4: That is the huge strain. And what the nurses are telling me is that, you know, in, in normal, whatever, almost everyone forgets what that was, mm. is that they would have a certain number of patients they'd be expected to care for. And particularly in our ICUs it would be one-on-one or two patients mapped. Uh, but I will say that it's well beyond that. Uh, opening extra beds is not giving us more staff, and that is really critical, absolutely.
0: What more do you expect governments to do to ease this strain?
4: Well, certainly, you know, some of the measures that have been put in place I think are, are helping. To alleviate uh, some of that, and I already mentioned around moving patients around, we're hearing about redeployment of nurses from other institutions and from other sectors within healthcare into the hospitals. There's a number of things that are happening, mm-hmm. but uh, you know it doesn't, you know it isn't it isn't adequate yet. You know we're not at a point where we could take a deep breath and say, okay, we're there. Uh, we're not there and there's a lot of movement happening certainly you know even calling out to other provinces and other countries apparently they're doing that but uh, what's happening right now on the ground the relief isn't quite isn't there yet uh, but redeployment is happening but it's a really yeah. uncomfortable situation for nurses to come from a, an area a sector where they've never been Um, And coming in and doing, you know, they're doing the best they can with what they have and the skills
0: they bring. Yeah, Let me ask you a little bit more about that. And We know Ontario is getting help from the military, as is Nova Scotia. Uh, Ontario is getting, as you mentioned, a a few extra health care workers at this point from Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, Other provinces may be able to step up. But how realistic is it to believe that other provinces will be able to provide uh, a whole lot to Ontario?
4: Well, I've been on national calls with leaders, nursing leaders across the country talking just about that and what capacity level they're at. Uh, we're not alone in the situation here in Ontario, but ours is is what I believe to be the worst. However, the others are building uh, and worry about, you know, sending people and then needing really needing them back. Uh, so it'll be a careful balance. It'll be decisions that need to be made in those provinces whether they can actually release people right. to come, and then uh, still be able to hold the fort back at, back in their home province.
0: Let me finish on this. You know, um, a lot of people have talked about the need for uh, a better paid sick leave offering mm-hmm. in uh, a number of different provinces. Ontario, uh, sort of in the headlines these days. What difference will three days of paid sick leave make to help curb the spread? Do you think?
4: <laughs> well, you know, I. You know, First off, it's not enough. I mean, we've heard from leading healthcare professionals, physicians, epidemiologists, even the science table here in Ontario talking about, you know, looking for 10. And the reason they're looking for 10 is that that's the basic isolation period when someone's been uh, forced off work. And, and or if someone's been um, uh, diagnosed as being positive COVID. Uh, people, we have to stem the flow. We have to stop the cases. We have to bring the numbers down. And many, many people are forced to go to work uh, and they can't afford not to. They are the sole provider for their family. So three days is a start, but you know in the long run, will it actually make an impact? I don't know. But we need to yes get people vaccinated. But we also have to allow them to care for themselves and their families. And even for nurses, there's many nurses who have not been eligible for any sick pay uh, because they don't have those benefits in their you know their collective agreement or their contract. Right. When they're put off work, they're off work without pay. And there's it's a hot, you know it's such a muddle of different programs really out there right now. It needs to be simple. This one is. Is you know they don't have to apply, which will make a difference, I think, for people. Um, that and it you know employers will then be okay. reimbursed. But right. it's, it's a it's a it's a start.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much for giving us uh, your perspective, and uh, to you and your colleagues, uh, stay safe and uh, know that a lot of people, everybody, appreciates the work you're doing on the front lines. Thank you so much.
4: Well, thank you very much, and everyone, do stay, do that. Please stay safe and follow the protocol. Thank you.
0: I'm now to welcome our panel of political commentators. This week, I'm joined by Susan Smith, who's a Liberal uh, commentator, Tim Power is a Conservative commentator, and Kiavash Najafi is an NDP commentator. Good, as always, to see you all. Thanks for being here. Uh, Susan, let me start with you, that, with the news that paid sick leave finally coming to Ontario after months of delays and wrangling with the federal government. Uh, look, we tell workers to stay home if they're sick. That's the messaging from uh, all the experts and governments. Uh, and now we have governments... Uh, so I guess my question is, how have governments, plural, handled this issue so crucial to trying try to beat back the pandemic and save lives?
5: Yeah, not that well, I think, on the whole, Peter. Uh, we know that sick days are a provincial jurisdiction. The feds put something in place. There is a safety net of, I think it's... Um, I'm going to get the stats wrong. Someone will have them right. But there is a safety net from, the, I think it's five days, the federal government, but you have to apply after the fact. And that's complicated and cumbersome for people, but it's there. But a more immediate measures, I think, were needed in the context of COVID. The provinces have all been reluctant to put something in place. Ontario, was, until this week, was outright refusing to consider it. They finally put something in place. It, to me, it's something, it's a fairly simple solution that they put in place, but it's only three days and you can only take one at a time. But it finally is giving a bit of a backstop for people who have to miss a shift or miss a day because they need a test, they need to isolate, or they need to go get their shots. But right. on the whole by government.
0: Tim, what are your thoughts on that and then how, how governments have handled sick leave?
2: Well, the pandemic uh, policymaking during the pandemic, Peter, has been a work in progress, whether it be in sick leave, employment benefits. This is another case in point with the Ontario sick leave. Uh, other provinces are looking at it. Um, it it's just le- lessons to be learned from all of this about future pandemics and, and how we go forward with it and how this stuff gets prioritized. Prioritized in non pandemic times. Look, what Ontario's done is better than nothing, but is that the bar we want to achieve? What Canada's done is better than nothing, but again, is that the bar we want to set? So, uh, some low bars uh, that need likely to be raised as we go through the hopefully to the end of this pandemic.
0: Kiev Ash, what do you think of uh, how governments have handled all this, especially in the context of the messaging from the beginning of the pan- pandemic? Really, if you don't feel well, stay home. Uh, but, you know, clearly looking at the take up on some of these programs, workers have said, yeah, I wish I could. Uh, you're not making it easy, though. Yeah.
3: Uh, it, Doug Ford is vaccinated. He um, he tested negative to a potential exposure and he's taken 10 days of sick leave already. I don't know how he, he believes that somebody who might test positive uh, could get away with only three days of paid sick leave. Um, this policy is too late. It's too little. Um, it. It should not be paid by the public. I understand some support for small businesses during the pandemic, but I don't understand why we have to pay for Amazon, one of the richest countries uh, companies in the world, not being uh, paying its minimum wage workers a day off uh, to take care of themselves. Um, all of that to say, I'm glad something is happening. I And I think this just highlights, um, as Tim said, a lot of the problems we're experiencing in the pandemic has nothing to do with health. It has to do with a, a social system that is not supporting workers.
0: Part of the debate here, right? Part of the debate is uh, is who foots the bill uh, and whether it should be, as you touched on, Kiyavash, whether it's up to small business in many cases, some big businesses too, but small businesses uh, to carry the freight on this and this notion of permanency, right? Uh, like, is it there for... Once you put it in, it's hard to take out uh, if you're a small business that can't afford the extra cost. But, you know, Susan, where we are... like. Are, you know, people are saying, okay, this is a step forward, but, you know, if we don't see the take up on it, this part fails too.
5: I think we have take on it if it hasn't been complicated. People have needed it. Uh, you're right. It, it is a challenge for small business to have this kind of thing in place, but I do think a sunset clause is valuable in the context of a pandemic. We have to Tim is right, policies on the fly, we don't, made on the fly during a pandemic, we don't always get it right and tweaking it is important and I do think it's okay for things to be sunsetted, the CERB's going to be sunsetted, other things are going to be sunsetted, so if we can't get it right 100% at the beginning, put a sunset clause in it, that's fine. I do think though that the province of Ontario has been tone deaf, the, the I'm sure The folks who think of how to do these things have had the idea ready and waiting to go in a folder. It was just a question of finally the premier and his cabinet saying, fine, we'll do something about it. And fine, they're doing something about it. It's not great. It's there. It'll hopefully help.
0: Uh, Tim, again, the big question is, okay, if if people aren't convinced this is enough to, to, uh, you know, I, I know that's the question. I mean, do you think this is enough to make people who are sick say, "Okay, I can afford to stay home now?
2: Well, there's another part of the question, too, Peter, and I, I suspect Susan's living this and, and Kivash as well. Look, good companies are already, particularly ones that are that are of, of a certain size, are already providing sick leave benefits for their employees. They're already looking after them. I mean, again, the danger here is looking at it just as, as solely being a government responsibility here. Um, uh, yeah, if Ontario's wish, as I understood it uh, when it was announced uh, earlier this week, is that their three days will then be supplemented by a deal they're trying to strike with the federal government on a top-up to an existing policy, well, that, that, that's better. Maybe this takes the trajectory of yeah. Sir Peter, that when it was first introduced, there were problems, but it ultimately became a very useful vehicle for people. Hopefully that's the case. But three days isn't enough, so maybe their plan is, as I say, to, to hop along with the feds and right. add the extra seven working days that would make it a reasonable sick leave policy. Just quickly 10.
0: on quickly on this, uh, asked, do you agree with the notion of sunsetting it, saying, look, this is a pandemic program and... I I guess we'll reignite the whole permanent sick leave debate after the pandemic's over.
3: Um, If it was different, I would agree with sunsetting it. For instance, I think that maybe we could have 15 days uh, of, so three weeks of paid sick leave that is fully paid by, by government and it sunsets um, at the end of September when hopefully we all have been vaccinated. That would make sense. But this policy doesn't make sense. It's too little, it's too late, uh, and the sunsetting of okay. it doesn't make sense. And I agree with Tim. Ultimately, the uh, the best way and the most progressive way to do this work is that it would become a condition of labor in, in Canada, that everybody has access to sick leave. It's paid by employers. And all if right. employers need support, that can be dealt with, but I don't believe Amazon needs our support.
0: Okay, just a couple of minutes left, so fairly quick answers from all of you on this. But Susan, let me start with you. Uh, Minister of Defence has announced yet another review of military misconduct, sexual misconduct by yet another uh, former Supreme Court Justice. Uh, Is that what's needed now?
5: I think this one's different, Peter. It is a review, but it's a review with the action attached to it, and, and it's a mandate to create something outside the system. The last review, uh, resulted in op honor, uh, and, and there was resistance about creating something outside the system. Uh, former Supreme Court Justice and former uh, UN High Commissioner for Refugees, mm-hmm. Louise Arbor, has been mandated to create, to advise on the creation of an external um, entity that's outside the chain of command of the military for right. people to report. That's a good thing. The other thing that I think is important is there's a lieutenant general who's been put in charge of implementing any recommendations that come up along right. the way. Jenny so Carineau. this isn't a review and stuff at the very end. This is a review with things to happen and action along the way.
0: Tim, Tim how, how do you see this? A lot of people thought the, uh, the, the last review by uh, Justice Deschamps was pretty clear. It's number one recommendation or key recommendation was set up an outside reporting system. Uh, what, how do you see this?
2: Well, maybe, maybe there's some review necessary on the specifics of what happened with General Vance and, and, and Admiral McDonald, But I think, as you just alluded to, Peter, the Deschamps review gave a lot of prescriptive uh, direction as to what needed to be done. And I think if you're in the Canadian military, particularly a female serving officer but not ex- or female serving member, but not exclusively female serving members, you want action. You're sick of words. You want action so that the culture can can try to change. Maybe some things did happen with Operation Honor, but clearly not enough. Action is necessary, not more reviews.
0: All right, Kiyavash, let me hear from you uh, to end our conversation today.
3: Yeah, i I agree with what i've just heard uh it, it's time for action rather another review I have a lot of confidence in uh in uh former justice uh, uh Arbor, but um but I do believe that uh it 's time for action, and i think that this minister has lasted so long in his position because he, he has gained the confidence of the top brass of the military through his inaction. He's, he's gained their support by not doing anything. It's time to actually do something.
0: All right. Thank you all for your time. Uh, we'll talk again. Take care, everybody. Thanks, thank you. you.
3: Thank
0: you. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Peter Van Dusen from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.